You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR, Santa Cruz. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. And what do we do here? We talk to writers, usually writers with books coming out. And we talk about writing craft. We talk about insecurities. We talk about how to totally screw up as a writer, how to accidentally insult your agent, and how to offend your publisher so you can learn from our mistakes along this journey and you don't have to make the same mistakes. It's all about learning this writing, publishing, filmmaking, writing game. So thanks for everyone. Thanks for enjoying our journey on the radio or if you're listening via podcast. Speaking of writing, I'm teaching a free creative writing workshop through the Los Angeles Public Library on Zoom on Wednesday, October 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And it's free. Go to LAPL.org. That's LAPL.org to find out how to register for the free creative writing workshop October 14th, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Join us. Today's show is about religion. Our guest is D.B. Ramsey, an ex-minister in the Baptist Church who lost his faith while studying theology in college. How does that happen? Well, that's what episode 106 is about. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm D.B. Ramsey, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host. Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have D.B. Ramsey. He's the author of Speaking of God, We Don't Know. Dave, how are you? (laughs) Hey, Tony, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on the show. And it's funny, the the first week I got a not, I I can't do any swears. I get this wonderful title from you, but I have to say instead of the real word. Yep. Yeah, but the title was intentionally provocative and crass, so uh, just so you know that. Yeah, how did how did you come up? When did you come up with the title? What did you did you did you go? You know, wow, I don't know sh- about uh, God, but um, or, or did you write? It, did you start writing it and go, wait a second, this feels like the best uh, title for the book? No, it's funny. I actually started with the title and word backwards, and uh, I, I thought of something intentionally provocative and crass that would grab attention. But it also uh, it dovetails with the, the essential thesis of my book, was, uh, which is, you know, we really don't know uh, anything about God, whether there is one. And if there is, uh, we really can't say much more after that. Uh, so there's this agnostic thread that runs through the book, and I thought the title uh, captures that and uh, in, invites attention. And I did not want anyone to uh, pick the book up and go, oh, I thought this was a devotional. I'm so disappointed. Really? You thought the devotional book that had the word SHT in a title was a devotional. Come on. All right. So let's, uh, let's catch everyone up because th- th- I think what's really important is your history related to this book because it's it you're not coming in hard you're not coming in hard like a richard dawkins here what's your what's your what is your experience um this is a, this this question could go on for four hours let's let's do the <laughs> but what is yeah. your experience in faith and belief and um and and such so we can kind of so we can show the people so we can get to the point where you got here yourself and wrote this book yeah, so uh, uh, I, uh, was, as I said earlier, I think off camera, I was uh, born in a Baptist uh, uh, manger, rocked in a Baptist cradle, grew up in a Baptist church. I was a Baptist minister for 10 years, 
but before that, uh, I you know went to college with Wake Forest and Duke and then Princeton for, for grad school. Uh, but uh, about six years into uh, to my career as a minister, I became agnostic. Uh, it didn't occur overnight, but I reached the point where I said, you know, uh, just sorry to interrupt you real quick, though. So, so I, I just want to go back. So, you were you were born into it. Your family is is Baptist. Is that correct? My yeah, my parents were Baptists. I was I was born into a Baptist church. Yeah. Uh, were Were they upset when you left? Well, no. So my father died when I was twelve, and that's part of my story and, and part of my uh, journey to both minister and agnostic. Uh, my mother was disappointed uh, when I left the ministry. Not so much. Uh, that I left it, but that I left it, uh, you know, in, uh, and moved to an agnostic worldview. But, you know, my mom has all, she actually died early this year, but she loved me. Uh, but yes, I, she was disappointed and she would be shocked if she were alive to, uh, to see this book's title. <laughs> it's so funny because um, there's uh, just, just even being an author um, where, where I've, you know, I've, I've taught classes, but I've also been in writing classes, you know, many years ago. And they, and they always say, you have to forget that you have a mother and a father and pretend like they're never going to read it in order for you to write their book. So, yeah, yeah. I did a good job of that. (laughs) But not only, not only were you in the Baptist church, but you did become a, it's a, you became a Baptist minister for 10 years. Yeah. I, uh, I was a, uh, an associate minister for the three years that I was in grad school and I interned under a very liberal uh, Baptist minister. I know that sounds oxymoronic, but, uh, you know, he cursed, he brought intellect into the pulpit, and he subscribed to the notion that wherever there are three or four Baptists, there should be a fifth. And uh, as, I, uh, as I was uh, contemplating what to do uh, next, whether to get a PhD or to be a minister, I thought, you know, if I, can, if I don't have to sacrifice any of my peccadilloes, this may be something that, uh, that I want to do. And I also had a sense of calling about it. Uh, I had a sacred sense of calling, and I talk about that in the book. But uh, yeah, I had two different uh, congregations. I was, you know, what, 28 when I uh, graduated from Div School, had a 300-member congregation outside of Charlottesville, and then uh, uh, four years after that, uh, moved to a larger congregation in a small college town in Virginia, and I was senior minister in both of those uh, churches. And when, and when you're under the, um, in, under the internship, um, I'm assuming you're a full believer. I mean, when I was a Jehovah's Witness growing up, I was a full believer. Even when I left, I was still a full believer. I just thought there was something wrong. Um, it took me many years and therapy and a lot of kind of like, it didn't come at me all at once. I had to really like grapple with my faith. So, um, so I just wanted to uh, make sure that, that, I mean, you were, you were totally in the faith. Yes. You, you believe, you believe yeah well yeah you know i think i think some you know it depends on what you mean by totally in the faith i mean uh was i you know i believed in jesus christ uh but as a result of of you know the a graduate study of religion you, you learn some things that you didn't get from the pulpit and there there are a lot of holes uh, in christianity from a historical perspective historical critical uh, scholarly perspective and you can't unring those bells uh, when you when you move from divinity school into the pulpit, and a lot of ministers choose to just put that aside, not say anything. And yeah, I, I kind of did that, but those those holes would haunt me, and and they would bother me, uh, you know, all the way up until the point where I said, you know, not only do I not think that uh, that the story of Christianity is as as it is presented, but I'm just not so sure what we can say about God if we can say anything at all. And that was really the the final blow is when I said, you know, number one, I don't think. Uh, we know if there is a God. And then number two, I don't think we can know. Uh, and so I walked away. And at the age of 35, I started my life over uh, from scratch. 
Um, and also, I mean, you're speaking to the congregation. Was there was there parts inside of you that were just going, "Whoa, what? I'm preaching this, but it's kind of killing no. me." No, no, I never, I never compromised my intellect or integrity. And, and I say in the book, if if anyone had been paying attention the last two years in my second congregation, they would have noticed the absence of a central figure in the literature about God uh, uh, of, of Christianity. Namely, I stopped talking about God. Uh, my sermons became very existential. My prayers were vague and vapid. Uh, so I, I, I did not sacrifice my integrity or intellect. But I reached the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't even do that anymore. And, but, but I had professors at Duke and Princeton who encouraged me to stay in the pulpit. Uh, there's a, 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 a theologian named Paul Tillich, uh, who's one of the, the more formative theologians of, of, uh, of my generation. And they said, look, your voice is like Tillich's, and the church needs that. And my response was, that's easy for you to say from the ivory tower. Uh, you don't have to stand in front of a few hundred people every Sunday and, uh, and, and try to uh, existentialize things. So. Um, I, I never made that sacrifice, but I eventually had to walk away. It's, um, I, it's really intriguing. Cause like, cause one of the part of me like grappling with it is like, cause I couldn't like, it's just, it, it's so there's good things. That's the thing. It's like, you look at, you look at Jesus teachings, you look at his philosophy, there's fantastic philosophy in there. And, and, you know, even when, even when I was leaving and I was gone, I was, I was still, believing that there was a you know jesus and a god and that the bible was true and um and i had you know i had to read you know i had to read deeper but and then i you know and then i got angry <laughs> it's just like why is everything crushed that i you know and i kind of had to rebuild and come back and go wait a second it's just too bad because a lot of it's good but it's twisted for the narrative of the religion yeah. Yeah, there, there, you know, I will always have a part of, you know, Jesus in, in, in my fiber, in my heart, but, you know, looking out for the least of these, uh, thinking about others. I mean, the teachings of Jesus are, are enough to hang a hat on. It's just they weren't enough for me, you know, to hang a, a career on. Uh, but to give you an idea, Tony, of, of how I brought, you know, biblical scholarship into the pulpit, one Easter Sunday in my second congregation, I essentially deconstructed the empty tomb story. I said, you need to understand the holes of this story. And there are holes. And I said, I'm going to present you the evidence on both sides, because I doubt you've ever heard the, uh, the evidence against the story and why some scholars believe it to be fifth, uh, myth and fiction. Uh, and then there was a risk in doing that. But uh, I actually had some members who came up and never money. heard that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, the grandest, a packed house. And, uh, you know, I had, I, had the, I, had the, I had the kahunas to, to say, look, you need to understand the other side of the story, because there are some holes in the story. And essentially, that's where my faith broke down. Uh, there are historical critical problems with the empty tomb story, uh, with with just a very light lifting of of uh, biblical scholarship, and it has to do with the uh, the dating of scripture, which I talk about in my book. Uh, you can very easily debunk the empty tomb with just the lightest of of uh, scholarly lifting, and and it goes to the dating of books of of uh, the New Testament. I would say 98% of Christians have no idea a uh, about the dating of the books of the New Testament, particularly which is the earliest, and B, why that's important to their faith. Uh, but it's very important. I, yeah. it's And then walking away from it. So what was it like when you made the final decision and said, I'm out? I mean, what, what, do, you do, when, yeah. what do you do when your whole life has been brought to this point, and then you're like, you know what, done? And so it's interesting, Tony. My last Sunday, you know, my, uh, my wife walked into my study, and I had this be big, beautiful office with books, you know, surrounding me. And, 
And she said, aren't you sad? Uh, and I said, no, this is, <laughs> this is like a, a load has been lifted. Uh, I'm, I'm relieved. I don't have to carry this burden. And uh, I never looked back. I, as I said, I started my life over from scratch. But I will mention, uh, John uh, Updike wrote a book right around this time called In the Beauty of the Lilies. But it's one of the books of, of, of Updike that really didn't get a lot of notice. But as soon as I read the review uh, or a review of it, I dashed to a bookstore to get it because in that book, Updike tells the story of a Presbyterian minister who loses his faith, leaves the ministry, and enters uh, a, a new career as a salesman. It just unbelievable case of, of, of art imitating life. And it was very redemptive to, for me because this was prior to the Internet. I thought I was the only minister in the world who had lost his faith and was going through this. And, and quite frankly, if only one person reads my book, and, and there really was one audience for, for my book, and that is any minister who's dealing with what I dealt with and who reads my book and says, wow, I'm not alone, then it was worth all the blood, sweat, and the tears to, to write it. And blood, sweat, and tears it is. It's um, it, what's beautiful. This is this because this is where um, this is where I started to go. This is where I started to question is when I started reading novels, and it blew my mind because um, well, just a real quick, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary. So what happened was one of my friends had killed himself, and he was shunned oh. as Jehovah's Witness, and my uncle oh. killed himself four years before, and, and I was grappling with a lot of suicide grief. And so I went to the elders and I said, hey, I'm like, I'm having a really hard time. I'm grieving Gibby's suicide. And they just, they straight up told me he was already dead. You, there's no reason to grieve him because he was already dead as far as God's concerned since he was excommunicated. Mm. Mm. Set me on a path of, because I was having suicidal thoughts. So I just went to the library and started getting, and started reading psychology books Tony Robbins was my intro. <laughs> but it's so goofy, but I did I had no it, this was pre-internet and I had no um yep. I was looking for information and it wasn't until I got to poetry and then I found out who Jack Kerouac was and then I started reading these novels and when I read the novels they spoke to me like the bible never spoke to me and I was and I just yeah. even though I couldn't find anyone who had my experience I knew I had comrades and it blew my mind. And thus we're here. I'm, I'm just, for the rest of my life, my religion is books. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, no, I, uh, there, there's a, there is a vast world of literature out there. And, and, and quite frankly, the, the Bible is not a really, in my opinion, it's not a great work of literature. Uh, it, it's actually the, the God that's depicted is, uh, is an SOB at times. In fact, my, uh, the last chapter of my book before the epilogue is, is it's on the book of Job. And uh, the title is uh, the book of Job colon, this God has a gambling problem, and he's also a dick. I hope I can say that word. Uh, yeah. Because if you read the story, it, it, it's, the, the, the God is just an a-hole. I mean, he, he, he gets lured into a bet by this Satan, who in, in the mythology of the Old Testament is not the devil. He's a prosecutor. And, uh, and then and the Satan is like, hey, look at Job. You know, or God's like, hey, look at my boy Job. What a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy because he's got a beautiful wife and kids and all these camels. Take it away from him, and I bet you he'll curse you to his face. God takes him up on that bet and lets Job utterly ruin this guy's life. And then when Job protests his innocence, which he's innocent, and you know, the reader knows that and Job knows it, God then turns around and says, where were you when I created the world? And it's really just a – he's a dick. And so, uh, you know, if you read that Bible, or if you read that story in the Bible, and you look at God as a character, he's not a very, uh, he's not a very nice character. He's actually, he's, he's, a, he's a dick. And I, and I talk about like that in that chapter. He's like a petty teenager yeah. on Twitter. 
for the he's like Trump. Sudden, then all of a sudden, it's like he took Prozac, and, and he had yeah. some mood balancing drugs, and then he got a little better. Yeah, and, yeah. And psychedelics and was like revelations. Let's just do this. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what? So, what? What was your now? Was your wife concerned that you were leaving? Was how far was her belief in the? Baptism? No, she she was she was with me. You know, the entire journey. I mean, I we would have deep theological conversations when I was in divinity school because that's where we met. So she knew of my thought process. So it wasn't you know a surprise. And so she was very supportive. Uh, you know, she certainly wasn't where I was you know at the time, but she she understood. But you know, I only had a few people that I could share this with, Tony. I had a few ministerial colleagues that knew. Um, and then, like I said, I had a, a, a mentor at Duke and then one at Princeton that, you know, I constantly talked to. And they, they tried talking me out of it. Uh, but in the end, uh, I did the right thing. And like I said, I've never looked back. I've never wavered. Uh, if anything, you know, my agnosticism has only hardened. Uh, and uh, and I'm no longer really hardened, not, hardened agnostic is actually kind of an interesting turn of phrase because yeah. agnostic is like yeah. we don't know, but damn it, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know that's the thing. It, it you know, and, and by the way, and I'll never force you know my my views or beliefs on someone, but when I get baited, and, and sometimes people are, are are not smart enough and they bait me, and I just warn them, you're bringing a butter knife to a gunfight because I will wear you out. I'll wear you out with just the lightest of, of, of biblical scholarship. Uh, but no, it's, uh, and then, you know, the events of, of the world since I left, I mean, 9-11 and then COVID, you know, uh, I mean, how do you reconcile the notion of a good and omnipotent God with, with, with COVID or 9-11, you know, and it's the whole, it's the age old thing called theodicy that Leibniz coined in the, I think the 1300s. And that is, you know, how do you recognize, rec- reconcile evil and suffering with the notions of a good and omnipotent God? And quite frankly, I don't think you have. And that's where Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others have really, they take the gloves off. I mean, I at least keep a glove on in my book. Uh, and, you know, the, yeah, the title's crass and the, uh, the chapter's crass, but Harris and Dawkins and others take the gloves off and just hit you right in the face. I keep a glove on, but I still kind of, I still really hit hard at, at some of those things. The, um, what's interesting is how a lot of religions turn it. So it's just like 9-11 happens. Now you really need to come with us and stay with God. COVID, yeah. <laughs> now you really need to come with us and stay with God. That's that's kind of the narrative that I have found. Even even when I look back on um, when I, when I have you know I have my little I have my finger in the Jehovah's Witness theology and what they're doing. And COVID is now the end of the world, and so everyone better come yeah. back now before you die. It's essentially what they're saying. So yeah, and I would say you know uh, where, where is God to be found in COVID? And you know the the, the liberal theologians say, oh, God is in the suffering. Uh, you know, he, he suffered on the cross and Jesus, so he can relate to our suffering. And, you know, that, that worked for me uh, for a while, the notion of a, of a suffering God, but uh, that no longer works. I'm like, so if, if you're able, uh, but not willing, then, you know, you're not God. If, if, you're, if you're willing, but not able, you're not God. Why, why call you God? Um, and I think COVID has called into question a lot of people's faith and, and doubts. And, uh, and I, I have had, you know, friends who've said, you know, uh, can we talk? And, and I'm, I say, sure, because uh, it, it's very tough to, uh, uh, to, to reconcile COVID, you know, with a good, gracious and loving God. And, that, and that's where it's good to have to, that people can reach out to you and have the discourse when they have when they it, and that's that's the thing I have. It's a problem I have with a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. They get way too preachy. They're, they, they go straight to the atheist wagon, and everything is bad. Yeah. 
we need to embrace our identity. We need to embrace who we were. And we also need to like really stay open. So when people, you know, it, just to have discourse with people without like slamming them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even when I was a minister, uh, I would always acknowledge the role of doubt and faith. And I would say often to my congregations, you know, Socrates said an unexamined life is not worth living. And I would tell my congregation that an unexamined faith is not worth having. And I would bring scholarship into the pulpit. So for example, the other, the other uh, biblical story that I examined in my book is the story of where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And, uh, you know, what kind of God would, would, number one, ask that uh, of someone? Number two, you know, what kind of God would require that as a sign of faith? I mean, I, 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 the title of that chapter is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, this God and Abraham must be crazy. There's no way, there's no way to read that story and, and, and come away with it with a, with a redemptive view of God. Uh, and, and it's just one of the many books in the Bible that's problematic. But I, I would, I rarely preached on that, on that story. But when I did, I just said, this is a, this is a horrible story. Cause if there's a God, that's how this God acts. What kind of God is that? It's not much of a God. It's a trickster. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is what's Tony, the, the Tony, the irony is that, as you know, the books that, that made it into the Bible that, you know, the, the, the selection of those books unfolded over hundreds of hundreds of years but I bet when, when they were talking, you know, whoever the they or the canons were talking about uh, what books to put in, you know, they unwittingly put this story in probably thinking, yeah, this is a good story. You know, this shows what kind of, you know, God's, you know, you know, demands ultimate loyalty and faith. And yet, you know, you, we, if you read it dispassionately and objectively, you're like, that God is crazy. That wow. God's off his meds. <laughs> when up. Uh- I now this I'm just throw, pulling this out of the air, but I'm sure you would know the answer to this. Is were, was there a few different books of Revelation that were found, and then they in the early uh, centuries? Have you ever heard about that? Where there was a di- there were different ones? No, You're, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I might see. No, I mean my, off my rocker on that. Uh, one. Yeah, no, you. I mean, I've I studied I've studied church history, and it's been years since I've you know read the the history of how the the books of the Bible came to be, but it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, 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 it was, it was political. Uh, you know, it was uh, contentious. And there's some books that didn't make it. You've got the uh, Apocrypha. Well, actually that's in the Catholic Bible, but you've got you know, the pseudepigrapha or false writings. Yeah, there are a lot of books that didn't make it into the new Testament. I think there's one called the infancy gospel of Thomas, uh, where uh, Jesus is a kid, uh, you know, turns, you know, turns his, friends into toads or kills a friend because he pissed him off. I mean, those books didn't make it into the Bible, but if you think about the ones that did, they're equally like weird. I mean, so he, you don't, you don't, a a book doesn't make it where Jesus, you know, kills a friend because he pissed him off, but a book makes it where Jesus curses a fig tree for no reason at all, just other than he can. So again, uh, it's, it's interesting what made it and what didn't, uh, but it, 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 uh, it unfolded over a long period of time. And, and I, I don't recall, you know, all the specifics, but uh, it, 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 it was a political uh, process that was, you know, uh, decided by votes of, of whoever the people in, in, the, in the position of power were. Well, it just sounds like a Hollywood studio production, getting a screenplay and going, no, that doesn't work. This, this. And then yeah, it's- yeah. Here's the, okay. All, all in favor of this book going in, say aye and all in favor, no. And, you know, it was that, that's kind of how the process was. Now, you know, the uh, fundamentalist conservatives all, but no, this was all inspired by God and God chose it. 
Well, then God's pretty dim-witted to include books like, you know, the book of Job and the, the story I just recalled in Abraham, because it's not a very flattering picture of God. If God were part of that process, those books wouldn't have made it, because he does not come out looking well in either of those stories. No. I don't, it, it, God was tweeting right now. He went and go, oh my God, you got you to gotta check out what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't put in the book of Job. Do not put in the book of Job. I'm a dick in the book of Job. Do not put that in. And then, you know, it makes it in. So, so um, you, you become agnostic and you go straight to the sex orgies and the drugs, right? Is that how it works? Yeah. Oh, just, yeah. The very next day, you know, just 24 seven debauchery, uh, no, <laughs> it, that's and you, Tony. You know that's one of the myths. That one of one of the many misconceptions of uh, agnosticism and even atheism. That you know, there's no morality and and that. And I will tell you this. Uh, yeah, and and I could tell you stories that would make your your blood boil about what uh, the kind of people that I saw in churches. And I met some saintly people, and and I mean that in a in the true sense of the word. But I met some of the meanest people who were just mean to each other. They were mean to their core. But man, they were there on the front pew the Sunday morning, nodding and you know dressed up. And uh, of course, as a minister, I had to fight with half of my brain tied behind my back. I couldn't really call people out on that because they were they were paying my salary. But uh, yeah, the, the, let's just say that morality is not the uh, sole providence of religion. In fact, uh, it's done a pretty bad job. Uh, religion has done a pretty bad job over the years of of, of being uh, moral uh, and righteous. Hey, that's interesting. So when you leave, you actually lost your career as well. So, so what do you oh, do build? How did that happen? Yeah. yeah, so I had actually, right out of college, uh, as a religion major, by the way, uh, I had uh, gotten a, a, a job in sales with Xerox, which at the time was kind of the brass ring of, of sales. So I returned to that world because that was the only experience I had and, uh, and then moved uh, you know, throughout uh, that organization and a competitor uh, and got into technology sales, and uh, you know that's kind of, that's what I do today at at, um, at, at, a, at a slightly different level. But no, I started over. But you know what, Tony? I knew that as long as I had a brain and a mouth, I would find a way, you know, to make money. Uh, I had friends who were you know millimeters away where I was theologically, but they would say, "I don't know what else I would do with my life." And I said, "Well, I don't either, but I'm not going to do this." And at some point, and and ministers that beyond a certain age would lie if you ask them this, but they can't do anything else. You know, you reach a point in terms of your age that uh, that's all you can do. And so you do make those intellectual uh, concessions. Uh, you know, you, you play along, uh, you, you know, existentialize, you know, God and sermons, et cetera. And some congregations have no idea that's going on. Uh, but there are more like that than you would, would imagine because they know they can't do anything else with their life. And I knew at 35 that I could. Luckily, I, I did. I've, I've uh, you know, for the most part, done pretty well. Hey, the people who the, the, are more in touch with the, you know, Jehovah's Witness and ex-Jehovah's Witness community, and there are people who leave when they're 60, and I'm just like, wow. I mean, they lose everything, and I just tell, I'm just like, you are the bravest person. You have no idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 I will tell you, so Tony, I'll tell you this, this uh, just to kind of put this in perspective, because there's another dimension to being a minister that uh, I really don't talk about in my book, and that is just the difficulty of that job, uh, you know, uh, Everyone has an idea of what you should or shouldn't be doing. You're, you're, you're always under scrutiny and criticism. But I will tell you, so last year, uh, I made 15 times my best year as a minister, and I had one-fifteenth of the pressure. So just kind of let that sink in, that one-fifteenth of the pressure and 15 times the pay. 
And, and, and Tony, I would be a minister again if I had not gone through my career. For the most part, it was a very deeply rewarding career. I enjoyed being with people in the liminal parts of their, their lives, the marriages, the deaths. And yes, even the deaths. Uh, uh, my dad died when I was 12. And uh, I had a certain affinity you know, for those that, that experienced uh, death, particularly of a parent or of a child. Uh, I enjoyed the, you know, I, I enjoyed the writing and delivery of sermons. I would write, I would start on Monday with a manuscript and by Friday it would be completed. I would commit it to memory. I've got a partial photographic memory. I would commit it to memory on Saturday and on Sunday, I took nothing into the pulpit. I, I had memorized it and delivered it and, uh, and, and, and got recognized for that. I really enjoyed that. And I, and I missed that. I missed that part of, of the week. Uh, but uh, but I had I you know I, I intellectually had had no choice I, I I couldn't continue you know playing playing along. Yeah, it's um. Have you ever thought of doing a podcast? I would listen to your podcast. <laughs> Tony, it's so funny. Uh, yeah, I had to ask a friend uh, what a podcast was when uh, when my publicist uh, reached out to you. Uh, I say that a little tongue in cheek. Uh, that's how old I am, and I work for a technology company, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're my first. Uh, that's what she said. And, uh, and uh, hopefully there'll be others. I'm glad I'm your first. It feels, <laughs> <laughs> but, but hardly my last, Tony. Hardly my last, but you are my first. Yeah, pod, yeah podcast. I mean, I just, you know, the joy, because the, there is a joy. And, you know, I remember, you know, I gave what, what they called Bible talks. Essentially, you know, I, I gave my lectures to the congregations. And there was a real joy in that, constructing it, pulling something from the Bible and saying, okay, how can I move this to something that's happened now? And to be really technical about it. And there's a real showmanship to it. It's something that I really needed to keep going, where that's why I kind of got into radio and writing. So I can, it, it kind of was, it, it moved me in that direction a little bit. And it's interesting that you get sales because you get to talk to people and create the narrative. Yeah creating yeah. them and going, does this work for you or does this not work for you? That, that's a great analogy. There was a, 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 a professor at Princeton, Tom Long, uh, who once said that preaching or a preacher uh, is an actor. Uh, he's certainly nothing. He's certainly more than that, but he's nothing less than that. And that, you know, 11 o'clock hour on Sunday for me, uh, when it's time to deliver, you are on stage. And, uh, you know, it's 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 also daunting because you know there was an old saw in clergy circles. Some Sundays you have something to say, and some Sundays you have to say something. And uh, as a writer, Tony, you know what it's like to have writer's block. And when you've got to do it every week, pretty much, you know, in and out. There are weeks that you know I would I you know on Friday I had the manuscript, I've memorized it, and I would go into the pulpit and I knew that I had a home run, and and I didn't need you to tell me at the door that I had hit one. And there were Sundays when I knew that this wasn't my best work, but it, I had to say something. Um, and and there, and, but still, the 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 art of of writing and then delivering uh, is fun. And I for what you know, my job today. There's it, you know, we're a, a, my company's a narrative based company. We don't we don't do PowerPoint. We write. We write what we call six pagers. And so and I do a lot of public speaking too, by the way. So in in a way. Uh, what I do today, uh, I borrow upon, you know, what I did as a minister. Uh, I'm not uncomfortable speaking in front of groups uh, because I've done it. And when you do it, you know, Sunday in, Sunday out, there, you know, there is a certain comfort with it. But I do miss that creative piece. Of, and again, as a writer, you can, you can relate to that. When um, after your last Sunday of being able to preach to the congregation, 
what were the following Sundays like? Did it feel did it feel really weird not to be at church and not to be in a front of a uh, congregation? Well, let me tell you what I did. So I've all, I've always been um, an athlete and athletic, uh, but I, I I picked running back up, and so uh, I would be I would be running the streets of of this uh, downtown college town with a bandana wrapped around my head, and if it was you know summer, bare chested, uh, and while people were in church. So that's what I did during that hour. Uh, you know, at some point, uh, yeah, I and mean, I've continued being a runner, but yeah, that's that's what those first Sundays were like. It felt more weird running downtown on Sunday at eleven. Uh, than it did not being, you know, in the pulpit, but the, the, I felt totally free. Uh, and I had no, I wonder what's going on. I, I totally walked away. And I'm sure though, and I did see people, you know, leaving church who would see me running, probably going, now this is weird because last month he was standing in the pulpit and now, you know, he's running, he's running the, uh, the, uh, the, the streets of our town. That's, that's awesome. I had a really hard, I, I took classes. I took radio classes when I first left. So, because we have to go three times a week as Jehovah's Witnesses. So, my Tuesday and Thursday nights, I was in a I was in a worldly environment, and I felt guilty the whole time. But I had my time, but I just felt immense guilt being there. It took me. Uh, it took me a while. Yeah. I tell you one. I'll tell you this. So one one Sunday, uh, I I saw a, a, a member who who. Uh, I was not a big fan of, and, and nor was he I, and I actually flipped him off, and that felt really good to, to be able to do that. <laughs> I was telling him he was number one. I just did it with a, with a different finger. And, Tony, let me just be, let me be clear, too. You know, the greatest compliment that anyone could have given me when I was a minister was that I can't believe you're a minister because I was not uh, – I was no different. Uh, I didn't have, an, uh, you know, a, an affected accent. Uh, I, I, I was myself, I would, if I was in a social situation, um, and I'm, I don't really enjoy the taste of alcohol, but if there was alcohol, I would have, I would have something in my hand just to, to keep people, uh, just to make them feel comfortable. And, you know, I, I would drop an F-bomb, uh, maybe on a golf course, just to, just to make you realize that I'm human. I had, you know, I had the same lusts and fears and, 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 uh, jealousies and loves and desires as anyone, nothing. I was no different you know, just because I was a minister and the greatest and, and today I still have people say, I can't believe you're a minister. Well, that's what they said when I was a minister. And again, that, that was the greatest compliment that, that anyone, cause I, I refuse to, to, to become a caricature uh, that, you know, you see on TV. I just refuse to become now there were, and there were a very few people who always expected me to be enrolled, uh, but I refused to do that. I, I, I wasn't even enrolled when I was enrolled. I was very earthy. Uh, and I was myself. The, that must have been a refreshing relief to some of the people in the congregation. I would think yeah, you would be the person people would go to for, uh, for advice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think what it does, it, re- it makes people realize that, you know, and, and it, it, I, it, it's a shame you have to say this, but that ministers are human. I would always hear that. Well, of course ministers are human. What else do you think they are? Uh, but it does invite people into your, into your space, uh, and, and it invites them to be themselves with you. Uh, but again, there were just there were a few that would not be comfortable with you know my occasional profanity or having a, not really the drinking really wasn't the thing. But uh, I just refused to buy into the stereotype, and and I always kind of like people keeping people uh, a little a little disarmed. Yeah, that's 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 the beauty of now being a writer. You know, you can uh, keep them disarmed. This is so. This is coming out really publicly. Are a lot of people going to? from who you knew going to read this and kind of be blown away do or do or do they already know that you're a so-called heathen on the agnostic side? Uh, 
You know, it's been 25 plus years since I left. So, you know, all my friends know my story uh, and they're actually excited about, uh, you know, reading the book. There should be no surprises. I, you know, uh, some of the stories I tell, and I do tell a lot of stories uh, in, in the book. Uh, I tell a story about an axe murderer in my second church at the time. I didn't know he was an axe murderer, but uh, I start a chapter with uh, with him and everyone in this town will know who he is because uh, the story ended up on the on uh, in People magazine. Uh you know, I think most people in the pews uh, in my second church eventually knew why I left. I couldn't stand up on, you know, and say, hey, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm an agnostic. I, I was pretty cryptic about it. Uh, but at the end, they, they, they knew. They knew that, you know, I'd become, you know, agnostic. So there really shouldn't be any surprises. The only surprises will be, and this is what the, the friends that have read the advanced reader copy uh, of my book have said to me. They, had, they said I had no idea how painful that was for you going through that. Uh, because I couldn't talk to a lot of people. And uh, that, that must have come through. I said, I say in the book that, you know, it, you know, it's one thing, you know, if you're a Christian, but it's not your, you know, you're not a minister. It's kind of like a parlor game. It's a nice to play and it's part of your life. But, you know, I, I say in the book that, you know, when I essentially realized who I really was, it was like a, a baseball pitcher losing his fastball or an opera singer losing her voice uh, or a pilot losing his vision. Because you can't do that anymore. You cannot do this career anymore. You can, but it's very, very difficult. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things that my friends who've read the book have said is I had no idea how tough that was for you. And, and, and how brave, how brave it is to just to, to leave something like that. It just, it blows my mind when people like, you know, when I, when I, when in, the ex, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, when you're an ex-Jehovah's Witness, you lose your whole family, you lose your social oh. You, they can't talk to you. You're as good as dead to them. And, um, and a lot of times these people are financially tied because they work with each other. They can't work anymore. So now they really like, they just really set them up to be totally screwed. And, um, and it's rough, but there's such bravery to it. There's such bravery to just, well, and even that, yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I, I didn't suffer to that extent. Um, uh, and, and and that's horrible and it's shameful and and that it, it you know one of my favorite favorite Latin phrases is you know res ipsa loquitur it speaks for itself that's just that's that's one of the many you know, horrible sides of religion uh, so I, I didn't experience that but there it, it it was a bit daunting starting over from scratch I mean I, I will tell you that uh, uh, I mean my wife at the time was a college professor so you know that we were not financially struggling but. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a lot of job interviews that I didn't get offers for because my experience was dated. So, yeah, there were some doubts, but uh, but it, it, it was the right thing to do. And, yeah, there was a certain amount of courage. And I was given that feedback uh, from peers who said, man, you have much more courage than I do. Uh, but, again, looking back, um, I, I would do it again. I, and I would probably become a minister again, knowing, you know, again, if, if I had to go through it again, uh, it, 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 it was a career for which I was well-suited in many respects. But, you know, when you, when you lose your faith, man, it's tough. It's really tough. And it's also, I mean, at that level, you're taking responsibility for a congregation. So everything you say is kind of, you know, it's a, it's so much different than just being, just sitting in the congregation. When you're up there and you're take, you're, you're the authority, it's your responsibility. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, the, the greater responsibility in a lot of congregations are disingenuous about how they talk about it, but you know, essentially you're, you're paid to put butts in seats and to grow the to, to grow the the, uh, the revenue of the church, you can call it evangelism, you can call it saving souls, but at the end of the day, those are the markers for your success. And uh, the the particular the second congregation, in particular, was was a, a declining congregation. It had, it had once been this 
a big, vibrant, you know, large downtown church. And it, it, in the early 70s, it split overnight. Uh, half the people left uh, and uh, the ones that were left behind never got over it. And uh, that was an incredible uh, challenge and responsibility in and of itself, let alone to do that while I was losing my faith. You know, it on its it on its own would have been very difficult. But when you put those two together, yeah, it 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 was very toxic for me. That's interesting. So they were really keeping track of your numbers, essentially. So, oh, Tony, the from my from my trial sermon, uh, when you know I'm I'm brought in, you know, as an outsider, and I'm watching people craning their necks, counting heads, to my last Sunday, and every morning in between, there are people who were counting heads. And knowing how many people were there or weren't there, and and counting the the, the offering uh, and the monies that were coming in, absolutely. That's it, it's a business. They, churches will say it's not, but at the end of the day, if you're not growing uh, the congregation numerically and financially, uh, you're in a tough spot. And uh, and and most ministers know what I'm talking about. And and uh, some you don't even need to give truth serum for them to admit that. I had a curmudgeonly minister, uh, a member in my second congregation who. Uh, unwittingly when, you know, they said talking about uh, football coach, yeah, we pay him to put butts in seats and, you know, uh, bring the money in kind of like what we expect of you. And he, and he said it so, uh, so bluntly, but it was, he was spot on. That's exactly what uh, is happening in, in churches. And, and again, you can dress it up, you can call it evangelism, saving souls. But uh, at the end of the day, that those are expectations that members have of their, uh, of their minister. So, so if a priest is or a minister is um, getting solid numbers, continuing to grow, continuing to make more money, do, do they have a lighter touch on them from above? Do they kind of go, you're doing okay, and they don't have as much pressure? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's kind of like uh, in, in any sport, you know, winning covers a multitude of sins. Uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're winning, uh, yeah, you may throw a chair if you're a basketball coach or you may get a technical foul. And you may not be the most gifted orator as a minister, but if you're going to congregation, yeah, you, you're, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're untouched. The flip side of that is if you're not, there's a lot of pressure. But Tony, you said something I want to I come back to, and I note this in my book, and I, I have a chapter in which I discuss the notion of a call. You know, ministers talk about being called to another church. And, and I, I, I make the argument, and particularly in the Baptist church, have you ever seen a Baptist minister called to a smaller church making less money. Kind of funny how, how that works out, isn't it? And, and when I was leaving my first congregation for my second one, I, I stood in the pulpit and I said, look, I could tell you that I'm being called to this church and maybe God is somewhere in this. But let me ask you, have you ever heard of God calling a minister to a smaller church making less money? And at the end of the, of the service, as I'm standing at the door shaking people's hands, this older uh, Virginia gentleman said, Dave, I'm so glad you didn't give us that BS. And he said the word about God calling you. And I just looked him in the eye and, and said, well, I appreciate that. And he knew the deal. And, and a lot of people know the deal, you know, and again, you could get another minister on this show who would say, oh, that's not true. God is part. Okay. Then show me a Baptist minister who gets called to a smaller church, making less money. He, he's either on his way down and he's no good. Uh, or he's done something wrong and scandalous, and this is the only place he can find himself. And, and that brings, see, what interests me about, um, about religions and about church is the gathering, how much we need social, we need social um, interaction so bad as humans. We'll even go to a church, even if we don't fully believe in it, <laughs> yes. around other humans. I, I, 
Yeah, I think that's a good point, Tony. And 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 if if you know if there is something uh, redemptive about uh, church, you know, um, in a in a community setting, yeah, it's that. Uh, you know, it, it is where people go, where some people go to find community, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and 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 but I and I I attended uh, a Unitarian church, uh, at, you know, after I left ministry for a while. But I just I, I just no longer felt the need for that. Uh, my family attended a very and still do a very liberal Baptist church um, in in another city. Uh, but it just it just was no longer attractive to me. I found community in other places, whether it be coworkers or friends. But it is a very powerful and compelling part of, of religion, and I would say it's 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 something to be lifted up because people do find uh, meaning and uh, and hope, and then some uh, you know find uh, uh, find inspiration. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's it's something that I just keep like, especially during now when we're in COVID, because our because our social all of our social um, cues are just cut off. We can't even see each other's faces and our facial expressions when we have a mask on. So I think people are really grappling with how, how do we connect? How can we still connect? You know, it's like we're on, we're on Zoom right now. Pre-COVID, I would never interview anyone on Zoom. It would have to be in person in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or in there was no, there was no online phone calls. It was always in person. Oh, wow. So, well, now, Tony, then I, you know, I, I, we should have waited. I would have gotten on a plane and flo- flown out there and to to, uh, to be to be live with you now. Uh, I, I, I hate I, I didn't know that. I would have I would have risked COVID to be there in the studio with you. So what? you oh, should have. Okay, there's gonna be a part two now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll be a guest on your podcast because I'm gonna be I'm gonna yeah. keep nudging you, going, you know, you got you got the preacher and you got you have the um you have the. Uh, the unique view that I think it's really important that people. Tony, you, you will be the, I promise you, you have my word as an agnostic. You will be the first on my podcast whenever, whenever that occurs. So uh, that'll be a good problem to have. And I will fly you from Los, uh, from uh, Los Angeles, wherever I am. I'm going to, I'm going to promise you that. How about that? Perfect. And then as as an agnostic promise, what do you put your hand on? (laughs) I'll put my hand on the screen. I'll reach out to yours. How about that? (laughs) oh yeah this is something that's okay so and then plus with you know i'm trying to like i'm trying to keep it together mentally during covid too right it's just the mental the mental anguish of being in the middle of a pandemic and having to just shift our lives completely and and not having sports for a while and it because i'm from san francisco so i was always a san francisco giants fan when it came to baseball and i moved to la and every time I would see a Los Angeles Dodger flag or something, I'd be like, no, scum. Just because. <laughs> and, um, and I kept forgetting I was in L.A. And I love Los Angeles, but I can't ever be a fan of the Dodgers. And what was interesting is I started to realize, wait a second, my collective, my tribe, we had a common enemy, the Dodgers. That, and that's what brought us together was our mutual was our fueled hatred. And then when I go to religion, I go, wait a second, the common enemy is Satan, or the common enemy is you're outside of God, and that probably brings people together more than even a God. Yep, tell you that's a great point. Uh, I was uh, a Baptist minister during the time when the Southern Baptist Convention essentially splintered. Uh, over the issue of uh, of uh, the view of scripture, you know, you had the uh, the literalist inerrantist that said, you know, the Bible is, you know, the inerrant word of God, dictated, you know, inspired by God, et cetera. Then you had another camp that said, no, the you know, the Bible 
uh, it, it times is, uh, is metaphor, at times it's symbol. And, uh, you know, you had this splintering of the convention and, you know, each side was defined by its, I won't say hatred, but objection to the other. And it's a very powerful and compelling unifying force. You see it with politics today, having another, you know, the, the enemy, the other, uh, and, and our current president uh, has done a great, a great job of doing that, of, you know, defining who the enemy is and rallying people around him as much as I violently disagree with that uh, of itself. But as an organizing principle, it's very powerful. It works with sports teams. Who are we? We hate the, you know, who, fill in the blank. If you're, right. you know, Tar Heel, you hate the Blue Devils. Uh, and it's an interesting part of, of our psyche and, 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 and sociological fabric. So I, I, when you started telling me, I said, I know exactly what you mean. It, it, it's, it's kind of blowing my mind because it's something I've been just thinking about this year. And I was, um, a friend of mine was directing a television episode of uh, um, a network series and the writers and the showrunner were in Los Angeles and the crew and the cast, it was all produced in New York. So, but they were both clashing they had been clashing for six years. They hated the showrunner. They hated the writers. The writers hated the cast, and they hated the crew. And we we were talking after one of the um one of the day one of the days full of meetings and prep, and he was telling and I was just like, you know what, you guys, you, the the common enemy thing is kind of bringing you closer together almost. And he said exactly yep. like that yep. has actually made us create a better show, and that's why we got to run for so long. And I was just interesting. Like, yeah, I was like, going, wow, what a what a um, what a starting point to bring people together is that common enemy. Yeah, and in yeah. doing it like crazy now, it's just him bad, her bad. It's it's not they don't even care about the message of what the person is. It's what the other person is. It's worse. It's it drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah, I tried to I tried to keep that out of the pulpit. I mean, I I was. Uh, uh, you know, minister while the convention was splitting, and, and both my churches had a particular view of, of that battle, and they were both on the, the more moderate side of that. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, I wasn't the kind of minister who talked about us versus them and good versus bad and in and out. Um, I, I took a higher road uh, and, and just tried to avoid those dualities. Uh, just because I, I think it was number one, they're artificial, uh, often artificial. They are, you know, unifying and organizing, but I just thought there were better ways to, to, to make use of, of time, you know, than, than trying to have an enemy and, and, and making that kind of a rallying cry. Although, you know, it, it, it at a denominational level, uh, it did result in the splintering of the, of that, uh, denom- one very large denomination. Uh, but I've lost touch with, with that and, and the fallout from that. But, uh, no, you, you make a very good point. And it's interesting because it's, it's an easy way to get an outcome that you want to get people on your side. But just like, yeah. just like it's an easy way to want to feel good and you just go, you know what, I'm going to have a six-pack of beer and not run. <laughs> and so <when> it's <laughs> better to go run and just, you know, do it in a different way where you have a good habit instead of going yeah. like, yeah, let's get the same feeling but uh, do damage to ourselves. You know? Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, Tony, thanks for having me. And um, I really appreciate the interaction. And like I said, uh, you've now inspired me to start my own podcast. And, and I promise you, you, you will be my first guest. Uh, you've heard it here, folks. D.B. Ramsey on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Speaking of God, We Don't Know, S.H. Star T. And now a musical interlude, care of Mark Lanigan and David Bowie.
his hand Gave their pledge So he told them his scheme For a saviour machine They called it the prayer Its answer was law Its logic stopped war Gave them food How they adored Till it cried in its boredom listening to drinks with tony join us next week same tony time same tony channel 
and a new author interview. If you like this, there are over 100 interviews on the Drinks with Tony archive. Go to drinkswithtony.com or take a gander through the episodes wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Have a grand weekend. I'll see you next week. You are listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR, Santa Cruz. Top priority, peace before everything, God before anything, love before anything, real before everything, home before any place, shoot before anything, style and stay radiate, love power, slay the hate, truth killer, flaky face, bay of say to they face, ain't afraid of major straight, race at the table straight, flow greatest like the greatest lakes, gates on greatest states, quiet water, major waves, steer the course, make a way, and come ashore on a greater day. Homegrown from the greatest grain Full flavor in the native strain Now put that on your brainy brain Full exposure to faith and slang Minimum wage and major gains Y'all seen Dante the Bay Day to night and day to day They came to play, we came to stay Get out the way B.I. Shunts by Heat Rocks Brooklyn finest preservation of B-Box Friend of folk, poison of detox When we rock the people I respond Priority, peace before anything God before everything Love before anything Real before everything Home before any place Shoot before anything Style and stay radiate Love, power, slay the hate Priority Love, power, Ha, 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 ha.